When I became a first-time mom, I was coming into it fresh out of college with a degree in early childhood education, and I'd spent 10 years around littles in various ways. I had very few new mom hurdles because I'd been around kids so much already at nearly every age, and food was not something I worried about. I was so used to the challenges kids uh, brought to the table, I felt super prepared to handle nearly everything. I believed that if you never gave your child anything but quote-unquote healthy food, that's all they would ever eat. Picky eaters were made, not born, like, duh. It worked beautifully with my firstborn. Even today, she eats more foods than I do. But I had a rude awakening with my second, like a banana cream pie to the face. <laughs> they hated all of it. Every last thing wouldn't touch any of my sugar-free, grain-free, dye-free, organic food hand-picked by unicorns and served perfectly shaped into butterflies and bears. Not even my cute little Pinterest-worthy bento boxes. The nerve. I officially had a picky eater. Or so I thought. Hey, I'm Annabeth. I'm a certified trauma recovery coach and host of the Safe Haven Parenting Podcast. I help single parents raising children impacted by trauma find tools and support to raise compassionate, resilient, and thriving kids. Today, I'm going to talk about food challenges that are super common for children who've been impacted by trauma. I'll give you some of the current research, as well as things that I've done to support this issue, and we'll also talk about labels we give to kids who are eating differently than we think they ought to, and what we can stay instead of picky eaters. I'll also touch lightly on eating disorders and how common they are for people who have experienced trauma. So uh, before we begin, I want to say two quick things. Um, the first is that this episode is not about some diet that I think is the only diet you should eat. I'm not here to tell you what is and isn't healthy. I'm A, not a dietitian or nutritionist, and B, the diet movements have messed a lot of us up in the name of profit often using fear or outdated weight metrics for their marketing, and I'm really over that. So you don't have to worry about food shaming or body shaming. This is a safe space from that. Secondly, this podcast is not here for medical advice. It is for informational purposes only. I do not provide food therapy, nor am I trained in that. Most of my research and knowledge is also around younger children and not teens. Please do seek out the help and support of trauma-trained professionals for food concerns. I help these long-standing beliefs about food. Um, what was healthy, what wasn't healthy, and how to provide nutritious and whole foods for kids... And while well-meaning, and at the time what I 
thought was well-informed, it missed a few vital pieces of information when it came to kids and eating. Like many, I assumed that children who were picky eaters came from parents who were picky eaters. This is a damaging myth. It shames parents, for one, and it doesn't make space for the real reasons behind picky eating. It's just one more narrative where we look at kids who are bad and we blame it on bad parenting, and that's simply not true. Reasons children can struggle with eating can be anything from sensory sensitivities to digestive issues to fear or anxiety, bad experiences that happened around food, and they can be from developmental norms, like just typical food shifts for children at different ages and stages. That's why some kids hate strawberries at two And within the year, strawberries are the best thing since sliced bread. (laughs) But it can also stem from neurodiversity. Sometimes it's brought on by change, like a move or um, switching schools. And it can be temporary. Big changes like that can cause sleeping, behavior, and eating challenges that may seem out of character or like the child isn't acting their age. But as the household settles into normal routines and patterns, you see things begin to shift back into their norms. And heck, like, we do that as adults. When we feel stressed out, food is often comforting. We might change how we cook because we're too stressed to do it. You know, our own patterns of behavior as the adults shift when we go through hard things or stress It's the same with kids. (laughs) So, um, these eating challenges, though, they also can stem when a child goes through major stressors, like a divorce, a parent who is ill or being sick themselves, loss of a loved one, as well as experiencing bullying or racism or abuse either directly towards the child or towards the child's parent or caregiver or even sibling. In other words, how we eat can change as a direct result of trauma. And the child doesn't even have to remember the trauma for it to still affect them in ways you or them might not be able to explain. This trauma often leads to sensory sensitivities that make eating difficult. The entire spectrum of eating disorders are also super common among trauma survivors. Using food to cope or using food to maintain control when you feel out of control is also normal. These things are not always intentional. Sometimes they happen subconsciously. If you've got a child that you're worried about having an eating disorder, you can find a huge wealth of knowledge on the U.S. National Eating Disorder website. They have a hotline you can call or text for free if you're in crisis or your child is or you're worried about them being in crisis. 
but they also have a lot of like materials and information on their website, including more info about the links between trauma and eating disorders. If you've got older kiddos, this might be a great place for you to start. You can use a search engine and search it, or you can click the link in my podcast bio and go to my Instagram page, and you'll find it listed under the help tab on my story highlights. Right now, I'm just going to focus specifically on eating challenges or picky eating challenges. I remember the day that I realized my child was not going to start eating what was on the table just because it was the only food available. They'll eat it when they get hungry, is what I had always heard and believed. I was going through this process of, here's your lunch, and when it's gone, you can have something else. And if they didn't eat it, I'd wrap it up and put it in the fridge. And when they eventually said they were hungry, I'd pull it out and said, here you go. (laughs) Eventually, the idea was that if they were hungry enough, they wouldn't starve themselves. They would just eat it. Yeah, um, this is a myth. (laughs) My youngest was, or when my youngest was nearly three, we were spending the summer in Europe and we were staying in this little summer house on the coast of Denmark. The only bus ran twice a day, one way. And on the way back, it dropped you off two miles from the place that we were staying. So we had to walk the rest of the way. I had no other transportation at that point. Um, and I was pretty sick and we were running out of food and we'd been up until that point, we'd been living on a staple of oven dried chickpeas, hazelnuts, some fruit, meat, and I don't even remember what all else, but I'd become sick the day after we got there and hadn't made it to the store yet. The option was quite literally what I had in the pantry was what I had and he would eat nothing. He went nearly three days without a full meal, snacking only on the last of my raspberries and the last of the peanut butter and jelly. After the three-day mark, when we finally made it into town, I had this hard truth moment where there was something not right about this idea that kids should go hungry until they eat what's given, and how unfair that was. So I stocked up on the foods I know he liked, and it spurred me on to re-examining my biases around food and kids and looking at the research. Here's the first thing I'm going to share with you about what I learned. The best way to say goodbye to a picky eater is to change how you talk about them. If you don't label them a picky eater, you no longer have a picky eater. I know it's kind of cheating, but it's legit. See, when we talk about kids' food choices negatively and label them things like picky eaters, even when we have neutral intentions, we introduce shame around food. This is important, especially for children who feel anxious around food. We want to talk positively about it because that creates safety And only when safety is present can growth and learning take place and they'll feel safe to branch out and explore other foods. 
Children who feel bad about themselves or their food choices will struggle to feel capable of making other food choices. So changing my picky eater was more about changing myself than it was about fixing him. So I addressed my own mindset. And I still struggle with this. I often catch myself saying he eats almost nothing or he doesn't eat much. Instead, I'm learning to say he knows what he likes. He eats enough to fill his belly. He's selective. He's a great eater. It can feel scary to release our ideas about food. I know there were many times that I I questioned if the research was really right. (laughs) But often when we cling to things out of fear, we bring about our own self-fulfilling prophecy. We have to let the fear go on this one. The second thing that we can do to support our kids is to stay honest and prioritize trust. If you know they don't like something, don't try and sneak it into their food. They will likely find out and it won't help create trust around trying new things. They'll view it with suspicion. This is a great way to model consent with your kids. If you don't have their consent to put that avocado in their smoothie, don't put it in their smoothie. No means no even with food. I know this can feel uncomfortable at first, but it does two amazing things. It show you shows them that you value their voice and preferences and that you respect them, which builds connection, trust, and safety. And it also lays the foundation for them trying new foods because they trust you And they feel that you hear them and that you get them. What you can do instead of sneaking it into their food is you can invite them into the process with you. How do you feel about avocado in your smoothie? Would you like to help me put this pumpkin into your waffles? And if they say no, no problem. You can then do it for your own food if it doesn't require you to make a whole separate meal. And invite them to try it, or you can wait until their palate develops more and they're ready. The third tip I have is to not enforce a no thank you bite. I offer it, but it's honestly unrealistic that you're going to expand their preferences by forcing them to try it. The goal with food is to keep it completely neutral. It is simply a tool that we use to give us energy to get through the next few hours. That's it. By not enforcing a no thank you bite, you again model consent and show them that their voice matters. You're not giving up your power as a parent or as a wiser and kinder adult in doing so either. You're modeling collaboration instead of control, which makes many aspects of parents actu- parenting actually much easier. For me, this looks like, here's what I made for dinner. Do you want to try it? And if he says no, I just say, okay, no problem. And move on. If he says yes, I say, great. Let me know what you think. He went through a season where he never said no. He always tried it. But then he picked up things he knew he never liked, such as soup, and now he doesn't try soup. 
Something important to note here is that a lot of children who have limited range of foods that they eat, it's often not about how it tastes. It's often about the texture. And children, especially young children, don't always have the words to say, this food makes me gag. They say, this food tastes yucky. But the reality is, if a food made you gag as an adult, would you eat it? No. If you knew it made you gag, would you try it? (laughs) No. (laughs) By trusting kids when they say, I don't like this, we let them take their needs seriously. Even as an adult, I would hazard a guess that when... If food doesn't make you gag, if you really don't like the flavor, you likely wouldn't buy it. I don't like jalapenos or curry. They both make me a little queasy, so I don't add them to my shopping list. I don't order them when I go out to eat. I don't force myself to try foods that they have. And if someone gave me a jalapeno popper and told me that it was a fried cheese curd and I took a bite only to find jalapeno inside... I would likely never take food from that person again. And don't even get me started on people who don't disclose things like weed and brownies or alcohol and punch. It's generally just bad practice to sneak things into food without disclosing them. That's no different just because the people eating them are small with no power instead of an adult peer. This gets tricky too with food allergies or sensitivities. Most of my life, I didn't like milk, but it was what was available. It turned out that in my 20s, after years and years of debilitating migraines I had been fighting that lasted for weeks at a time, were directly linked to dairy. A lot of times when we don't like something, it's our body intuitively knowing that we are sensitive or allergic to that food. Not always, but... What we want to help our kids do is take their needs seriously and to trust their bodies, even if we don't understand them or they don't make sense to us. And I've had experiences as an adult where I told somebody that I was sensitive or allergic to something and they went, there's no way just a little bit will hurt her or they'll... I've had someone who literally was like, he put butter and food that they made for me and just said, well, I wanted to see what it would do to you. And the thing is that, like, we don't want to do that to our kids any more than that person doing that to me was not okay. It's not okay to do that to our kids. Even if they don't have the words to communicate to us why that food doesn't work for them. When someone snuck that food, that butter, into a dish that they made me, I got knocked flat for a week. And I've had people do this to my kids who also can't eat gluten or dairy. Someone will intentionally give them something and I'll have a week with them having a rash or headaches or stomach aches messed up sleep, the works, because someone thought, oh, well, their mom was just too picky and it's just fine. It's just a little bit. It's not okay to hide food in something because we don't understand why someone else has that need. We don't need to get it to respect it, regardless of how old the person is who's asking for that. 
Even if our intentions are good, good intentions can still have negative consequences. I know it can be intimidating when our kids don't like food much. We can also fight pressure from those around us who think we're just doing this whole parenting thing wrong. Gosh, if I had a dollar for every time someone told me my child wouldn't eat junk food if I'd never fed it to him in the first place, I'd be a rich lady right now. (laughs) But even if you're quaking inside, you don't have to respond to those people. You can still look at the research and decide to do or make whatever shifts you need to to create the relationship with your children that works for you and that you desire. And if you're not able to do that yet, because it's just too hard, like there's zero judgment here. This is a process. And while I'm sitting here delivering this podcast to you, I by no means have it figured out. And it was no way something I changed just in a single day. It took me two years to break out of the diet culture I was in surrounding Whole Foods and another two years to figure this stuff out. You're getting four years worth of personal development and growth in less than 30 minutes of a podcast episode. It's seriously okay here. It's never too late or too early to start. It's also okay to seek support if you have past pain around food that feels triggering. There are cycles around food sometimes, and we have to break them for ourselves before we can break them to our kid, break them for our kids. It's all okay, I promise. You got this. Anyways, fourth tip. Um, yeah, right. So the uh, fourth tip is to serve tiny portions that let them get more if they need it. This is a quick and easy one, but where truth, kids can feel overwhelmed by what's on their plate when it's too much. Even for my now six-year-old, I sometimes will only serve two or three bites of whatever I'm serving, and I'll cut it up small. Not everyone needs small, but it works better for him, so I do. And Kids who feel overwhelmed by their plate, weirdly enough, can actually go into the fight-flight-freeze mode. That overwhelm makes them feel unsafe, which makes them less likely to eat even their normal foods. And it's subconscious. They're not doing it on purpose. It's just like a weird internal response that they do. It's um, We can create food safety simply by serving many portions and making second helpings easily attainable for them to dish up on their own. Or have us help with that if, as long as it doesn't require to forfeit our hot meal. <laughs> Fifth tip is to not use a reward for finishing their plate, like offering a favorite food or dessert. This, again, well, well-intentioned, can have the side effect of teaching kids to view their main portions as a chore or a negative. They may shovel down their plate to get to that treat, And miss intuitive eating cues that tell them that they ate too much or not enough. It also makes sugar feel like a treat, which has been linked to creating sugar cravings or imbalanced sweets. It can also make dessert seem or feel like the holy grail. Instead, normalize sweet stuff with imbalance. If you offer dessert, offer it as a midday snack or at the same time as dinner just a portion of the meal and let them pick and choose how they prioritize what's on their plate. 
decide beforehand if there will be a second helping of the sweet thing. So you don't accidentally offer a reward by saying something like, you can't have any more of that until you finish the rest of the things on your plate. Treat it the same as you would a green bean. Like seriously, (laughs) keep all food talk neutral. Don't assign good or bad values to what you eat or what your kids eat. One time, my son went to dinner with someone, and um, even though I prepped this person ahead of time, he couldn't eat any of the food. They thought it was okay to force the issue, and my son was stuck at the table for over an hour with nothing that he could eat. His sister finished and was handed a popsicle, and my son was made to watch her eat it. See, sis? She ate all her food and she got dessert. You could have that too if you just eat your dinner. All the while knowing he couldn't stomach the food on his plate. And he was cajoled, bribed, and shamed for not wanting his food. But it wasn't about him wanting his food. This set us back months of work. The goal of meals has to be first and foremost to create safety and through safety we see progress which leads me to tip number six remove pressure even subtle pressure to eat or try food this will decrease your stress load and increase felt safety and security children need to feel that they are pleasing you regardless of what they can and can't eat don't tie their worth to their dinner plate It develops security in their relationship with you. Subtle ways we can accidentally pressure kids with food is how we say things like cajoling or pleading or frustration and sighs or eye rolls. As well as using words like your sibling likes it, won't you just give it a try? Or you liked it last time so I know you can eat it. Even, why don't you take a bite of what you don't like, then two bites of something you do. This also includes any discussion around body sizes, weight, clothing sizes. These things have proven negative effects on kids and adults. Keep discussions around bodies neutral. We don't want to use our power as a parent to unintentionally model manipulation, especially around food. This isn't always easy to do, and it can feel overwhelming if you're brand new to this idea. Again, there's zero shame here. We're all learning and growing and doing the best we can, and that's good enough. The seventh and final tip is to always provide a safe food that they can fill up on at mealtime. This eliminates you making two meals to keep them full, but also lets them choose what works for them. Now, I'm going to share two things about this step. The first is what research says to do currently, and the second is what I'm actually doing. They differ only slightly. The research-backed method has you providing a carb that your child can fill up on. Maybe that's a basket of rolls, a bowl of fruit, rice, pasta, potatoes, etc., They are not required to try or eat anything they don't like, but they also won't have anything but their one safe food available. Make sure there is enough to actually fill up on, but don't serve anything different than what you're serving to everyone. I defer on this slightly for two reasons. 
Um, the first is that my kiddo really struggles without consistent protein. And in my work with kids, I have found this to be true for a lot of children. If they're crashing, the last time they ate, a protein is the first thing I look at. So I tend to provide a safe protein, even if it's just peanut butter or deli meat. Secondly, because we are gluten-free, gluten-free carbs are expensive, and I cannot afford to provide bread or rolls at every meal for my entire family, and not enough for him to fill up on. But they're the only carb that he'll eat outside of waffles and fruit. (laughs) My kiddo's safe foods are nachos with goat cheese, apples, berries, bread, peanut butter, waffles, popcorn, bacon, ham, and chicken nuggets. That's it. It's incredibly limited. So I make my daughter and I whatever we feel like and usually offer my son a safe protein and a safe carb. I find it's not really extra work to throw together a peanut butter and jelly and apple slices or if I'm making scrambled eggs and bacon in the morning, I can easily add a waffle to that. While this is his safe list now, this is actually an expanded list. He loves when I add pumpkin to the waffles or even sweet potatoes. He also has grown to like pickles and ham is also new for him. I'm always placing new foods for him out and letting him grow at a pace that works for him. Life is hard enough as it is and sometimes it's exhausting to not be able to just not worry about it. But I don't get to pick what my children's needs are based on my own convenience. I just get to choose how I show up for them. The thing about parenting hacks is that they don't all happen overnight. You can't start implementing these things. Um, I mean, you can start implementing these things, but it might take months or even years before you begin to see change. And that change might be because of other things that you're doing to heal the trauma or the reason behind the food sensitivities or, um, not food sensitivity, but oh my goodness, (laughs) um, the food aversions. There we go. (laughs) The goal of this isn't to change your child. It's just to create safety around food and food discussions. And it's to help create a long-term healthy relationship with food. And we do that by removing pressure, trusting their no, and offering a safe food. Some families have success with letting their kids cook. And as the kids cook, they feel like they get control over how it's prepared and what goes into it. And that can oftentimes encourage kids to expand what they want to eat. Uh, You can even shop for produce with them and help meal prep. I've had a lot of fun doing these things myself, and my kids are great at choosing the freshest mushrooms at the store, even if he won't eat them. He's still learning about how to eat and prepare foods and learning how fun those things can be. I know if you, like me, come into this from a place of wanting to feed your children the healthiest options It can feel like it just goes against the grain to provide something that you didn't think of as healthy before. And I just want to reassure you that you can still meet a lot of your food standards following these tips. Even if the portions are different or what you're putting on the plate is a little different. Healthy looks different to everyone at different stages of their lives. 
My healthy 10 years ago is way different than my healthy now. Fed is still better than not fed. Chicken nuggets is still a protein. The more we can remove shame around food choices, the better our long-term outcomes are for both our kids and also ourselves. My bonus tip number eight, um, I don't like this, is a surface level expression. Kids don't always have the words to say what they mean. So you have to look deeper than what they're saying. I hate this or I don't like this may actually mean this needs salt. This makes me feel nauseous. The texture makes me gag. This upsets my stomach or makes my head hurt. I don't like the sound it makes when it crunches. The flavor or smell brings back bad memories. It's too big to eat easily. There's too much food on my plate or the food is touching other food on my plate. The food is too dry or too wet. The food needs sauce. The food is too spicy, sour, bland, sweet, bitter. The flavor isn't consistent. Something changed that was unexpected. Like the peanut butter is now crunchy when it's usually smooth. These, seem, these things may seem small, but big picture, if you've got a kiddo who is sensitive to sensory differences, these do make a big difference for them, even if they might not make sense to us. Um, sometimes I can decipher the code and add a little salt or vinegar and it'll fix it, but sometimes I can't. The th- thing about these tips is that you're not aiming for perfection. You're just working with your child to meet their needs for food. If you would like more resources around this topic, I've really enjoyed the Kids Eat in Color on Instagram. She also has a website. It's a great learning resource. She talks a lot around these issues and she has really great graphics to make it understandable. If you need an extra layer, there is a group on Facebook called Mealtime Hostage and they use similar tools that is mostly connection-based. Happiness is Here is another blog that tackles, tackles eating choice in a great way. So a recap of the eight things is one, change how you talk about it and think about it. Two, stay honest and prioritize trust. Three, skip the forced no thank you bites. Four, serve tiny portions. Five, don't use rewards, keep food neutral. Six, remove pressure. Seven, always provide a safe food. Eight, decode, I don't like this. I hope you found these tools helpful. I know it can be challenging and honestly exhausting. And I've often felt like pulling my hair out. A lot of kids have a huge variance in what they can and can't tolerate. Whatever you're dealing with, you are definitely not alone. Next week, we're gonna talk about seeing beyond behaviors to understand what our kids really need. So if you liked this episode, be sure to leave me a rating and hit that subscribe button. If you want to work with me one-on-one, for the time being, I'm offering monthly coaching through a pay-what-you-can 
um, system. So I offer single sessions for a specific issue or a monthly subscription where we can really dig deep into trauma-safe parenting and trauma recovery. You can find out more by clicking the link in my podcast bio. I can't wait until next week's episode. It's going to be fantastic. I hope you have a great week.